Are you offering your clients the experience they really want? Or are you offering them what you think they want? Join hosts Laura Gregg and David Partain from FlexShares Exchange Traded Funds as they talk with a variety of industry experts and advisors, just like you, about their latest industry research to help you develop the flexible mindset you need to rise above the crowd. Hello, and welcome to the Flexible Advisor Podcast. I'm Laura Gregg, and I'm here again with my co-host, David Partain. How are you doing, David? Hello, Laura. I'm doing well, and I am excited to meet our guest today. On the Flexible Advisor, we seek to invite guests like the one we have today that will provide unique insights and actionable ideas for advisors that want to fine-tune or grow their businesses while deepening client relationships. Today is the first in a series of discussions we'll be having around sustainable investing. We plan to tackle tough questions with advisors, industry experts, and hopefully some of your clients. Our goal is for our listeners and for us to come away with a deeper understanding about what is driving some advisors to embrace sustainable or ESG investing, while others continue to stay far away from it. We want to understand how advisors are addressing ESG investing with their clients and their clients' reactions to those conversations. We also want to learn whether or not clients are proactively asking advisors about sustainable investing and what that looks and sounds like. Given the regulatory spotlight on this important topic, I want to be clear that FlexShares offers some ESG-focused ETFs. However, not all FlexShares products have an ESG focus, and we won't be talking about any specific ESG investments flex shares or otherwise in these episodes. We remain committed to ensuring that the Flexible Advisor podcast is a product agnostic forum with which to share ideas for how advisors can add value for their clients and to offer insights on strategies to help advisors grow their businesses and of course, deepen those relationships. Now I am thrilled to welcome Jeff Gitterman to the show. Jeff is a widely recognized leader in the ESG and sustainable investing field. He has more than 30 years of experience as a financial advisor with a primary focus on high net worth individuals and higher education professionals. Jeff began realigning Gitterman Wealth Management toward ESG and sustainable investing in 2015, and we'll ask him about what that looked like. Jeff is also the co-host of the Impact TV show, which airs on fintech.tv and Bloomberg TV. He's also the author of Beyond Success, Redefining the Meaning of Prosperity. Noted as an ESG expert by Financial Advisor Magazine, Jeff has also been featured in Barron's, Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, Morningstar Magazine, Financial Advisor Magazine, Money Magazine, and CNN among many others. And in 2018, he was named RIA Thought Leader of the Year by WealthManagement.com. Woo! (laughs) Jeff, we are thrilled to have you on the show today and cannot wait to hear your insights on this very important topic. Welcome to the Flexible Advisor. Thanks for having me, Lauren, David. It's a pleasure to be here. 
Okay, so that was a really long list. So I, if I wasn't excited before, I'm very excited now. <laughs> and uh, I really appreciate the fact that you're going to kick off our series on sustainable investing. All right, so with all that said, we know you're passionate about the topic. And I'm hoping, though, that you'll share with us what sparked this passion for you. For sure. So early in my life, I've always had more of a bend towards understanding how to do well by doing uh, good. And uh, that really didn't sink in with my wealth management practice completely until in 2015, I got to participate in a film called Planetary that included Bill McKibben, Paul Hawken, and a group of astronauts and indigenous elders, really on the topic of the sustainability of our relationship to the planet, mostly. And that really woke me up that I wasn't doing what I thought in my personal life about mostly in my business life. So in 2015, I made a commitment to really get my arms around sustainable investing and provide that to my clients. And ultimately today, we only provide sustainable investment modeling for new clients. So we've made a big transition from where we were then. And so one of those ways you got your arms around it was you recently published a paper and it's titled The Great Repricing, Financial Advice in the Age of Climate Change, in which you talk about the planet being in code red, which actually does sound frightening to me. And, and maybe you'll explain why it should, should, it should sound frightening. But in that report, you talk about how the risks related to the climate change also present us with opportunity. So share your perspective from the article around the risks to company valuations and individual assets and how you believe we need to change our traditional investing mindset. Yeah, so when I started doing all this research, I started meeting with two interesting groups, climate scientists and reinsurers. That's really where we started. Um, then ultimately, we met with asset managers in Europe as the third group. And what we learned from all the scientists that we spoke to, scientists operate in a very specific vertical. So you might have a person that's looking at ocean acidification. You might have another scientist that's looking at glacial melt. You have another scientist that's looking at coral reef degradation. And the more scientists we met with, what we just found in common was that they all said there's a breakdown in their vertical that they're looking at. Glaciers are melting faster than has ever been seen in history. Um, Ocean temperatures are warming faster than has ever been seen in history. It really wasn't important to argue any point about what was causing it. That really, uh, honestly, it it doesn't matter at this point what's causing it. Um, I mean, I guess it does for a purpose of how do we slow it down. But but what we were interested in is what is going on in all the different verticals. And Mm. my background is in systems thinking. So what we found is that if every vertical we're talking to says there's a breakdown, what they're missing is the cascading effect of all those verticals breaking down at the same time. And any projections that we were seeing out of the UN about climate issues and physical transition risk issues was probably going to be exacerbated. And that was the opinion we came away from by 2017. So we did two years of study and research, meeting with all these different people. We came away with the understanding that whatever anyone thinks, it's going to be worse. And 
I like to think that we thought what we'd experienced in 2018 through now, we wouldn't see till probably 2030. So we were even underestimating some of the physical risks that we started to see unwind. But it doesn't take a rocket scientist or a NASA climate scientist <laughs> at this point to see that reinsurers are facing claims at a rate that they've never experienced before. And then what we realized is that the data providers, physical risk data providers like 427, Carbon Delta, Climate Service out of Brooklyn, all these companies were starting to be acquired by major rating agency companies, S&P, Moody's, um, Fitch. They all started purchasing these physical risk data companies. So we realized one major important thing that you can't manage what you can't measure and that all these risks could be measured and therefore were about to be managed. So there was going to be this great repricing, as we put it in our conference in our paper, that was going to happen because the data was already there to understand where the risks were, but they weren't priced into the market yet. And once the rating agencies and reinsurers were quite aware of this risk, and they are very public about it, you don't have to go searching at this point for it, that we understood that that was going to affect pricing momentarily. When I say momentarily, I, I mean like this year, next year, <clears throat> we're going to see a dramatic impact to different pricing around mortgages, municipal bonds, um, coastal properties and real estate, because the data is more than enough to start pricing in those risks. Now. Mm. And we wanted to make the market aware of it. The market's kind of has its head in the sand a little bit about it at this point, but that's changing quickly. And the SEC is exacerbating that. So you have the data, you have the SEC on the regulatory front, and you have more litigations in the international courts than at any time in history against the fossil fuel industry. There's over 2,100 filed litigations currently in the international court systems against fossil fuel companies. So Jeff, yeah, <laughs> we can go in so many directions with that. One, one question I have is, you know, as you're thinking about ESG portfolios yourself, are, are, are you eliminating fossil fuel companies uh, as, as part of your mandate? Um, what does it, what does that look like? So if you dig into fossil fuel companies, they own more patents than any other industry on renewable energy technology. So some fossil fuel companies are going to be winners in the race to find alternative solutions. So it's our general opinion that not owning them hurts in two ways. One, you miss the opportunity for the ones that will transition appropriately. And two, if you don't own them, you can't act against them. You can't proxy vote. You can't do the things that might push them in the right direction. So it's our general belief system that it's better to own the better ones. However, we also design our portfolios so that clients can exercise their right to not hold them. So we build portfolios with them in it, but we build them in a way that clients can exit them out of those portfolios if they so choose. It really goes to the heart of the matter of what is ESG versus sustainable investing and impact. Those three terms are bantered around like they're the same, 
And uh, this will bring up the whole Wall Street Journal series that uh, James McIntosh is running um, as a critique, which he says, I mean, he says it's a critique of the ESG industry, so I'm not putting words in his mouth. When I say that against ESG, saying that ESG is not sustainable or impact, and that's true. It it is not. ESG is a data set. Uh, When we say ESG investing, we're really um, painting too broad a brush of what ESG is. ESG is a data set that should be used by any thoughtful investor to view the companies they invest in through a broader lens than just the traditional lens. And there's more than enough data out of Europe and the United States through SASB and FSRB that shows that there are material points in ESG data that affect stock price. Um, but it's as a risk mitigator first. And the argument that ESG could be an alpha driver is a weak argument at best. Um, all the historical benchmarking that is done against ESG passive indexes versus traditional benchmark indexes, it really doesn't go to the heart of the matter that most of these indexes underweight fossil fuels and overweight large tech growth because of ESG scoring systems that have been put in place by data providers. And that has benefited the return of the ESG benchmark indexes versus their traditional indexes. That doesn't mean that ESG is an alpha driver, though. Those are category categories that people have invested in um, by overweight or underweight. They are not ESG investing tools. So I think we have to be really careful. And I know we've talked about this in the past, Laura, but you know, to us, ESG is comparable to a GPS because it gives you more data than an old map gave you. No one's sitting around arguing whether the old map is better than your GPS. And, and the reason is because the GPS has more data in it. It's not because the GPS is guaranteed to get you to your trip quicker than the old map is. There are times where the old map will probably beat the GPS. The reality is that it gives you a whole wider, bigger data set of which to evaluate your trip from. And that's the exact same thing that ESG does from a data standpoint on the companies that you're investing. So ESG should be looked at first and foremost as data of which to analyze companies. Then we talk about route preferences in your GPS as your personal values that you might want to add on to your investing journey. You might not want to own fossil fuels. You might not want to own tobacco companies. You might not want to own weapons. But those are values conversations where ESG is more about value. I I love that uh, that GPS reference because I think it makes it so understandable. And for people wanting to get a closer look, visit uh, the Gitterman website, which we'll have a link to. Um, it just is is a great way to break this down. And I I, I do want to get into that that. Wall Street Journal, the the series that were run. But do you think, as we're talking about ESG as a data set, in, in not too long, do you think that this will just be another screen that most investors just use? Like they use the other financial screens right now in choosing investments, or will it always be its own different thing? You know, I, I think it's table stakes for most investment managers at this point. And it will be table stakes in the next five years. It really is just more information. 
And, and the idea that we're fighting over whether more information is relevant or not is really an absurd argument. Um, it just happens to lead people ultimately down a journey where most people wind up wanting to make more sustainable decisions about their investing. Not everyone, but it does lead people down that journey. And there's a rebuttal by the fossil fuel industry and <clears throat> some political you know, influence to not make that happen. Um, but it really colors ESG with a brush that doesn't apply. Um, ESG, again, and I know I say it a lot, but I think it's important to drive it home. It's just data. That's all it is. It's just data about non-material impacts of companies that winds up being material. So we used to think of them as non-material, but an easy comparison is when the Val Valdez oil spill, which most people don't remember, but when it, when it happened, there was almost no impact on the stock price of Exxon. When the BP oil spill occurred in the Gulf, there was a huge impact on the stock price of the company. Um, when a CEO today gets caught for doing something inappropriate, it directly affects the stock price. There's just a way which investors are looking through lenses that didn't apply 15, 20 years ago. And they apply more than ever today. And we have to look at them as investors and take them into consideration. So if I could, I would like to, to address the, the yeah. Wall Street Journal uh, series. Uh, the, the Streetwise columnist says um, ESG is an example of the financial industry spotting an opportunity to make money by helping people feel good about themselves. And he asserts that despite the claims to the contrary, that these investments don't do much to make the world a better place. And the point he asserts is that pushing companies to sell off, and I'm using air quotes here, dirty assets through shareholder activism does nothing long term because other investors, specifically PE firms, will jump in, purchase those assets and continue to make them available and, and profit from them. And I'm I'm. I'd love to hear your rebuttal to that. So it's really twofold, my rebuttal, because my first rebuttal is that he's painting a brush on ESG that doesn't really apply. Um, or as my dad used to say, figures always lie and liars always figure. <laughs> he, he's, he's saying that people that use ESG are specifically trying to save the planet um, by eliminating fossil fuels. So he's making a connection or cause and effect that isn't definitively tied to each other. People are using ESG, especially in Europe for the last 10 years, because they find that it helps them make better decisions about the companies that they buy. The demand for ESG investing by the public shows the world that there's an interest in the connection between planet and investing that didn't exist before. And while the response to that is always baby steps, it's not you know, immediately going to solve the, the problems of the world, the acknowledgement that people care enough to put their money in these products is driving companies to make significant changes about the way that they do business. Ultimately, even hedge funds and private equity funds, and I go to those meetings and those conferences, are looking more at ESG factors than ever before. And there is not a mad rush to buy coal plants at this point, especially if you're not converting them. 
So it, it does do good because the court of public opinion weighs heavily on the management of companies. And there is a big change in the past five years in the court of public opinion about the fate of the planet and the fact that you can, as a consumer, as an investor, weigh in on that through those two avenues. So it will help to change the world. Will it in the you know, day-to-day transactions of stocks and securities of these companies, a little bit because it creates a cost or um, a cheaper cost of capital for companies when more and more investors want to own them than when less investors want to own them. So it does have a, a, a short-term impact on the companies in a positive direction. But where it has a huge impact is if you talk to corporations today and ask them how much they're disclosing around their carbon footprint and their social weighting and how they treat their employees. They're reporting more than ever today because they understand that if they don't report, it's looked on badly by investors and consumers. That transparency is critical to having these companies be better actors for the public. And it's ESG investing and the data providers themselves that are driving that transparency and that disclosure. So it's like this virtuous circle. You know, the the corporate sustainability officer in a company used to be relegated to the basement by the red stapler, like the guy in the office. And now today they have a C-suite position because the C-suite is constantly asking questions about their sustainability. So it is having a positive impact. And his desire to just push it away is you're not saving the planet. And then to go as far as to say it would be a lot easier to just regulate and tax bad industries that society agreed upon shows such an ignorance to the fact that we can't get society to agree on much these days in the court of you know politics or or regulation and litigation so allowing investors to weigh in as consumers and investors is critical right now Mm. that is um that's really good. Uh, I want to take this a uh, little different different tack t- to really focus on your business because you made a dramatic change. And Flexure has recently conducted a survey. It's around 300 high net worth investors. And 87% of the respondents within that survey said that their advisor had never brought up the topic of sustainable investing. You, on the other hand, in 2015, you did something really different. You transitioned your business to fully focused on ESG investing. Do you think that has given you a competitive advantage? And what does that look like in practice? Well, I don't think it's given us a competitive advantage yet. I think it's coming. Um, We're certainly getting inbound calls the past six to 12 months where people Mm. are hearing about us and we're getting calls from climate professors at universities asking if we can manage their money. So that, that's new, but, but not enough to say that it was the reason of transitioning. Mm. Where I think it's really helping is in alignment of who we are to our clients. And when our industry, I was raised that you don't bring up beliefs or values or politics or anything as an advisor to your client and that you serve as many masters as you can and keep your mouth shut. I think those days are over. And and I've had advisors leave the firm in full candor because they weren't prepared to be 
outspoken about where they fell on certain issues. And, and unfortunately, for lots of bad reasons, the climate, you know, seems to be a political issue, which it certainly shouldn't be, but it seems to be. So to be realistic, the most important thing to me is that the clients that are with me now know who I am, know what I stand for. And it takes away, you know, a little bit of the risk that return on any given year will force a client to look for a better solution because they feel like they're doing more with their money than just shopping for the best return possible. Not that we've, in my opinion, sacrificed return at all for doing this. I, I, I think we've you know done fine competitively, um, but it, it does let the client know where we stand and builds better longer-term relationships for sure. I've had advisors, because I lecture on this around the country for the last five or six years, I've had advisors come to me and say, I was about to retire until I heard you speak and I got the fire back in me to go out there and, and do this business in a way where I was aligned with the clients that I really wanted to work with. So, so to me, that's the most important part of doing it. Huh. So in the transition, so I'm just going to even get a little more in depth. So let's say, did you require like legacy portfolios to transition over to ESG models or how, how did that all go? Yeah, we, we did. We stopped offering. It took a few years. So we started doing the research for our portfolios in 15. We went live with our portfolios in 17. We transitioned um, by, by last year, by the end of 20, probably 85% of our assets have transitioned. You know, there's tax reasons while there are legacy positions that you know, it's just not appropriate for the client. So we can't have a blanket um, position where you can't own legacy stocks. Um, that wouldn't be fiduciary responsible. But we've transitioned 85% of the existing book, and we only offer sustainable portfolios to new clients. Got it. And so I, the, I hate to jump ahead, but the next question would be, I've had, I had to have 100 conversations over two years or a year and a half <laughs> With clients saying, this is where we're moving sure. and why. And that ESG is the GPS of investing conversation saved me um, because <laughs> it allowed clients to understand why we were doing this first and foremost. And then we let the clients really dive deeper if they wanted to on specific industries that they didn't want to own. But we came out and said, look, we're, we're not eliminating any industries. We're just using a much broader lens, like a GPS versus the old map, to make investment decisions. That, that's it. This is a big data conversation first and foremost. And we could talk about value second, but first and foremost, table stakes for us going forward are we're not going to do investing unless we include this data in our investment um, strategies that we're owning. And so every that, client said yes. So that... ESG is GPS. It sounds like an app, Laura, and I would download. Yeah. Is that <laughs> what we're going to do? Yeah. <laughs> awesome. if I, well, considering that, that, that IT is worth way more than anything else <laughs> in this world, if I could build that app, I'll get right back to you. Dude. 
I also have a hint that you have some involvement with the UN is, well, 2015, which sounded like a big year for you. They, the UN uh, took an active role in providing the discussion around ESG, obviously with the sustainable development goals, and they called on the global goals and a universal call to action to end poverty, protect the planet, ensure that by 2030, uh, all people, quote unquote, enjoy pre- peace and prosperity. So Tell us about your involvement with the UN. You're getting calls from professors. How you think the world is doing with these goals? Is there any way we can reach that 2030 goal? Well, that's two different questions. So uh, uh, my involvement (laughs) with the UN, uh, we were doing seminars in New York City on ESG and uh, the Office of Partnerships, specifically Will Kennedy, who was uh, one of the people in charge of the Office of Partnerships at the UN, um, saw some of our information that we were putting out and asked us if we would consider hosting that conference at the United Nations. So in 2018, we held our first sustainable investment conference. There was a big desire to bring in the public markets, um, the investment companies and asset management industry for the first time in history to the UN. Kofi Annan had made a real big push that we couldn't reach the sustainable development goals without the capital markets being involved. There was just too much of a need, estimates of three to $5 trillion a year in capital needed to reach the goals by 2030. So that conference was really wildly successful. I mean, we went in kind of, you know, with, with blinders on and, and just hope for the best, but we wound up selling out the ESOC room and uh, holds about 700 people and bringing in some of the largest asset management companies in the world. I think at the time we held the conference, we represented like $80 trillion in wealth in that room. So it was a great success. The UN really loved it. We did two more in 2019. Um, uh, They're on pause because of COVID, but we've done three conferences there now. And then the second question is, are we on target to reach the goals? And we're definitely not on target. You know, COP26 was really pretty much a failure. Um, In the U.S., we certainly, unfortunately, don't have the political will to pull some of the triggers. The infrastructure bill in its original form would have done wonders for, you know, this country certainly to address a lot of those issues, not just climate issues, but as you said, issues around poverty and social injustice issues. And unfortunately, we, we seem a long way from getting there. Oddly, if you really look at who's made more progress, I, I think China has internally shut down more um, you know, future coal building and made some more strides than, than we have currently of late. But there's a lot of work to be done, and we're not on target to meeting the goals, for sure, um, unfortunately. So, Jeff, as on each episode, we, we love for our guests to leave an actionable idea or two for advisors that are listening that they can put into practice. And I, I'm wondering if what one or two things should advisors do today if if they're on the fence and they've decided after listening to you that they want to learn more about sustainable investing and how to actually employ, employ it in their business, what, what can they do to get started? So we participated with Uh, RA channel in the ESG playbook. I I think it's a pretty concise four-part program that's still available at RA channel for free and has continuing education credits. 
Um, that really gives you a very good basic education from a lot of experts and a lot of different companies that participated in that. The, so that's at rahannel.com. On our website, gittermanasset.com, we have the Great Repricing Conference and the paper that goes along with it, which are also available for free, just to help advisors wrap their head around these ideas. Um, next, really most, I, I think the easiest thing is to talk to your wholesalers. Um, most wholesalers at most fund companies are becoming well-educated around ESG issues and are available to help you in either creating portfolios or finding solutions. So we always drive people back to their business development person or their wholesaler at their fund companies that they're currently using today. And last but not least, I mean, if you look at this really study and, and what's coming out about especially high net worth interest around these issues, it's off the charts. I mean, 86% of people want to discuss this with their advisor. Only 6% of advisors are having the discussions with their clients. So there's this huge pool that is, you know, empty. Like, uh, I, I don't know if you remember, but there was a book that came out, Blue Ocean. And it was like, do you want to be swimming in the blue ocean or the red ocean? And the red ocean was where all the sharks are swimming. So everybody's swimming for the clients that don't have an interest in this and all advisors are in that pool. And then there's this huge client demand for this conversation that very few advisors are having. So just from a pure business opportunity, wow, this is probably one of the best business opportunities, especially as we see the transition of wealth down to next generation that we're about to experience or in the middle of experiencing that people can really have right now. So I think for advisors, the biggest opportunity in our business is around this trend right now. So Jeff, I, I we always hear it's the next gen and it's women, and it kind of cuts off there. But in all the research that FlexShares has been doing on, on different topics, we're finding that that it's that it yes, it is next gen, and that yes, women are interested, but in one of our uh, surveys in late 2019 on primary breadwinners, high net worth primary breadwinners, we found that men were actually more interested than their female high net worth breadwinner uh, female counterparts. So I, I'd love to get your, your thought on that. Um, should we be broadening our thinking on who's interested versus who's not interested? Yeah, for sure. You know, we, we've done some work with Ken Heyman from Alliance Bernstein. He's a behavioral finance expert that as a client's net worth grows and their fear of the risks of not having money declines, their desire to be purposeful with their money increases in equal demand. So it's a U-shaped curve. So as their wealth grows, their fear about risk of not having enough dissipates. The desire then to do something good with their money equally grows. So yes, the male breadwinner um, is featured as equally as the female in that trajectory. That's not by gender, that's specific to net worth. And it's it goes back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you lose the fear of not having enough, there's this kind of self-actualization that starts to evolve of, okay, now that I don't have that fear, what occupies my mind? Well, what kind of legacy am I going to leave? 
And, and certainly our grandchildren are coming home more than ever to their grandparents and, and saying, you know, what are you doing about climate change? What are you doing about these issues? Like the, these issues, uh, we, we've said this many times in, in seminars, grandparents can easily say no to their kids. They can't say no to their grandkids. So <laughs> when the grandkids come home to the family office or to the higher net worth grandparents and say, what are you doing to protect me from these issues? Grandparents are listening in, in huge droves, and it's not just the women there. Well, Jeff, before we close out, I admire anyone who's written a book, and you're one of those who I admire. So the book is called Beyond Success, Redefining the Meaning of Prosperity. Tell us a little bit about it, what compelled you to write it, and what can advisors learn from reading it? You know, it, it was really four parts. Um, one, connecting to what's most important to you. I mean, we called it source, but I'm not a religious person. I, I guess I'm a spiritual person. But just just finding something that you can connect to that makes you feel purposeful and, and makes you feel at peace. And second in that book was owning your own expression. So basically, what are you good at? What can you bring to the world um, in service to the world that makes the world a better place? Um, redirecting your attention to help and serve others and expanding your awareness. Just, you know, looking outside of your local community, learning more about the world, the issues that are in the world, and broadening your perspective. Um, as a systems thinker, what we always find is that the broadest perspective possible makes the best decisions possible. And narrow perspectives don't. We had an illustration in the first edition of the book of a man walking through a maze on stilts, and he was the only one getting out of the maze, um, and everyone else was, you know, hitting the walls who wasn't on stilts. So it's just this idea that I, I don't know. We we've become an opinion-based culture and not a introspective research-based culture. Like I, I don't mind anyone that has an opinion if you can defend that opinion and, and research it, but let's go back to actually learning and not just taking opinions off social media and, and off of political parties. Let's go deeper. I think that just serves yourself and the world. That was really my whole premise for writing the book. I, I had hit a point where, you know, I, I made more money than I ever thought I would make more money, certainly than my father had made in his lifetime. And I realized that I still wasn't satisfied and that, that chase of, our current definition of success in our culture didn't provide any meaning for me. Spent some time, and I had a radio show for two years called Beyond Success, just interviewing people that radiated success. Um, I interviewed ski instructors that worked with handicapped children. I mean, really, uh, people that just had this bug about jumping up out of bed in the morning and running to their occupation. That was the focus of the radio show. And I learned it didn't matter how much money you were making. It mattered whether you were passionate about what you were doing. And that to me is more important. The, the end quote in the book is um, really aligning your expression in service to the world is the greatest success you could find. Wow, Jeff, that's really cool. And it was so great speaking with you. And it has been a real delight to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. Thanks, David. Thanks, Laura. It was a real pleasure as well for me. I appreciate it very much. If you're an advisor and would like to know more about Jeff and his writing, just visit GittermanAsset.com. That's G-I-T-T-E-R-M-A-N-Asset.com.
I would also encourage you to go to Amazon and look for Jeff's book, Beyond Success. If you like this podcast, you may also like other Flexshare's podcasts called Funds and Focus. Check it out today and you'll find it wherever you get your podcasts. For myself and Laura Gregg, we want to thank you, our listeners, for joining us on today's episode of The Flexible Advisor. Thank you for listening to The Flexible Advisor podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of FlexShares Exchange Traded Funds or Northern Trust. All investments involve risk, including possible loss of principal. Before investing, carefully consider the FlexShares investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus and a summary prospectus, copies of which may be obtained by visiting www.flexshares.com. Read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Foresight Fund Services, LLC Distributor. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Although we attempt to keep the information complete and current, we do not warrant that the content herein is accurate, complete, or current. We make no commitment to update the content herein. It is your responsibility to verify any information before relying on it. The content of this podcast may include technical inaccuracies. We may make changes in the products and or services described herein at any time. We provide you this information with the understanding that we are not rendering accounting, legal, or tax advice. Please consult your legal or tax advisor concerning such matters. Please remember that all investments carry some level of risk, including the potential loss of principal invested. They do not typically grow at an even rate of return and may experience negative growth. As with any type of portfolio structuring, attempting to reduce risk and increase return could, at certain times, intentionally reduce returns. An ESG investment methodology that includes and excludes issuers and assigns weights to issuers by applying non-financial factors such as ESG factors, such ESG investment methodology may underperform the broader equity market or other investment products that do or do not use ESG investment criteria. An ESG investment methodology will influence exposure to certain companies and sectors. Currently, there is a lack of common industry standards relating to the development and application of ESG criteria, which may make it difficult to compare an ESG investment methodology with an investment strategy of another investment product or funds that integrate certain ESG criteria. The subjective value that investors may assign to certain types of ESG characteristics may differ substantially from that of an ESG investment methodology or a data provider. Not all FlexShares ETFs have an ESG focus. For more information on which FlexShares ETFs have an ESG focus, please visit FlexShares.com.